Good morning, everybody. Our ushers are at this very time passing out note sheets and pencils. They also have Bibles there. So if you don't have your Bible today, if you forgot that at home or you don't own a Bible of your own, go ahead and raise your hand and our guys will bring one to you. If you need a Bible to keep and to read through, uh, we would encourage you to take this one, put your name in it and, and, uh, and use it moving forward. As everybody needs the word of the Lord, it is the word of life that we just sang about, which gives us hope and peace It is this word in which we rest. It is this word which teaches us how to worship our Savior properly. So we want you to have those words of life. We we love the way that God provides for His people. He does so through ordinary means of grace. We're going to speak a little bit about that a little bit later in the service. But uh, there are several means of grace that which He gives us grace by and by which He supplies our hearts with peace and rest. And one of those is fellowship. Uh, I would normally encourage you when our service is done to stick around after church to hang out and talk to one another, to spend time getting to know each other, praying for each other's needs. But today's a little different being church picnic day. Uh, We would encourage you that when our service is finished, and we do have some more singing to do, we do have communion to observe today, but when that is finished, uh, we would encourage you to to be expedient in moving over to the park at Chichibu, which is right out our Longview entrance and to the left, just a block down. You'll see uh, we've got our guys there already set up the tables, And um, there'll be lots of stuff for us to do out there, including food for us to eat. So we would love to continue the fellowship, but do it over at the park. So when church is finished, uh, we hope that you'll do that. If you have food that you have at home that you intend to bring, uh, there will be time for you to go and grab that and then uh, hurry over to the park. If you want to go home and change into more comfortable clothing, you can do that too. Um, But we would love to be able to spend some time with you after church. And so we hope that you will budget uh, a little bit of your afternoon for that as we continue to glorify God on the Lord's day through loving one another. Last week, Paul preached about the ministry of remembrance. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, uh, Peter wrote, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And so um, Peter had written to the churches in Asia Minor, a group of churches in that region, Already one time, he had written a circular letter which was passed from church to church. And now he sends correspondence again in, in the form of Second Peter. And not much of what he has to say in that letter is really novel. Not much of it is, is new or innovative. He reminds them of the hope that they have in Jesus and the joy of knowing that their salvation is a gift from the sovereign God. He, he establishes their hope in the midst of potential persecution that is headed their way. He establishes their hope upon the promises of God, those promises that will surely come to pass. And then he warns them of scoffers and false prophets who will come and try to upset their hope by teaching them lies that say different things than what God has already said to them. He urges them to remember that just as the remnant of old looked forward to the promise of the coming Messiah, so too do we look forward to the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we are to be determined to wait expectantly and patiently until the day that he does choose to return. So he doesn't say anything too radically innovative. But given man's proclivity to forget, given the fact that we often have to learn things over and over again, it is not a waste of time to repeat important concepts in preaching and in teaching ministries. The wisest among us are not immune to letting even the most important things fade from our thoughts and fade into the background from time to time. So reminders of what is fundamental and essential to our hope is a great blessing to the believer. 
And certainly when it comes to the content of the gospel, there is nothing of greater importance to the mind and the heart of the believer than knowing what Christ has done to make us belong to God. Considering the gospel again and again should be something like a man who's married to his wife happily staring into her face every day when he wakes up. This is the one that he loves and this is the beauty that he wants to see again and again. That beauty doesn't fade or grow old to him because she is dear to him and so the gospel should be that way to us. Every time we see it, every time we hear it preached, it should be to us like a renewing um, a breath of fresh air to us. There is no waste of time in, in preaching the gospel again and again and, and putting our eyes again on uh, the finer fundamental points of what it means that Christ has saved us. So it is of great benefit for us to hear the same truths repeated. And here in chapter 10 of Hosea, we see a great example of that this morning. Back in chapter 8, now this is some weeks ago, Hosea drove home the importance of the reaping and sowing principles that we see in Scripture. Hosea 8, chapter 7 said, For they sow the wind, speaking of the northern kingdom who's been unfaithful, they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. And so we've been learning about this, this aspect of the people of God, the northern kingdom, who has not been faithful to the commands of God. And Hosea has the difficult task of revealing to them that judgment is on the way. They have been sowing disobedience to God. They've been sowing unfaithfulness. And now the great reaping is coming. This, this product of their unfaithful heart to God is beginning to bring consequence into their lives. As Yahweh builds, uh, uh, built a legal case against the unfaithful Israelites who comprised those in the north, he assured them that the judgment to come would be appropriate in light of the consistently lawless behavior that they've been exhibiting toward their God. Now our exposition of that chapter, chapter 8, focused on two main things. First, we focused on the consequences of sowing to the flesh, of sowing to sinful desire, which the northern kingdom was guilty of. Because of their chronic lack of faithfulness to Yahweh in the covenant, the consequences they would reap, including defeat at the hands of a Gentile nation. The nation of Assyria would be allowed to come in and defeat their armies and take their lands and, and put them under their yoke. They would also experience a loss of provision from Yahweh their God, the one who had protected them and provided them for so long because they had turned their back on him. He would stop giving them abundant crops. He would stop blessing them with relief and, and sustenance. And there would also be a disqualification of their worship efforts. Because their offerings had been so hollow and lacking in love, he would no longer accept their worship to him as God. So that was the first thing we focused on when we looked at chapter 8. The second thing we focused on was the wonder of how God brings about salvation in the lives of his people, especially in light of this reaping and sowing principle. By grace, by God's generosity and mercy, those who trust in Jesus Christ are receiving a blessing that they do not deserve. Though we see throughout the world cause and effect, reaping and sowing, Christ sows salvation for his people. And they receive the benefit of it, not because they are holy and good and they deserve it, but because God is holy and good and generous enough to give it freely. And so we, we focused on that wonderful gift of salvation that is only found in Jesus. So Hosea has spoken of reaping and sowing already, but it was a concept that the people in the north needed repeated exposure to. And so just a couple of chapters later in his prophecy, he returns to the concept 
And he draws their attention to this idea again that their actions in the present are sure to produce important results in the future. So we're in chapter 10 and we're going to be studying verses 11 through 15 this morning. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. And thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. Would you bow with me as we pray together today? Holy God, we are humbled to be near to you. And we confess today that anyone with a, an honest evaluation of humanity can see that there is wickedness in the heart of man. And that there is a propensity in us to put aside the law of God and to ignore it and to live as though we are in control of our own lives and so we confess that today, but we also confess the wonderful solution to that problem, that through the work of Jesus Christ, we can be made new again, that the relationship of hostility between mighty God and his disobedient creation can be restored through the blood of the Lamb. And so, Father, as we think about cause and effect of sowing and reaping today, we pray that you would give us clarity of mind, help us again to appreciate the work that you have done to make us yours, and help us to understand how we can walk in that truth today and experience a better relationship with you uh, in part because of uh, the, the law that you have given to us which guides us and directs us, uh, but primarily because of the grace which you have given to us that allows us to walk in that law. We love you and we praise you and ask all these things through Jesus Christ, our sovereign King. Amen. One of the most well-known passages of Scripture in the New Testament, and Hosea, of course, is in the Old Testament, but thinking about the new for a moment. One of the passages you've probably heard most often is the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Famously, it's known as the Hall of Faith chapter. And in it, the author of Hebrews brings to mind dozens of examples of men and women over the ages who have shown an active trust in the Lord throughout the history of mankind. It begins like this. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 2 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. And so following those verses, we read story after story of obedience and resolve and trust and faith. People like Abraham, who was willing to, to leave the land that he knew to follow after God's promise and to go to a new land where he would give him a place to dwell and a progeny, a people, uh, that would fill the earth. And Abraham's wife, Sarah, who was so faithful that, that God caused her to conceive in the womb, even though she was decades past childbearing age. Moses, who was faithful to follow and heed the words of God and to lead his people through the wilderness and, and to follow the instructions of his king. Rahab, who was a Gentile woman and yet showed faith by making a place for those refugees, those 
uh, those spies of Israel who were checking out uh, Jericho to, to, to hide so that they would not be captured and thrown in prison. Gideon and David, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the book of Daniel, all of these examples are people who refused to relinquish, relinquish their faith in Yahweh. They insisted upon trusting the Lord. They did not turn away from Him. And the last several chapters of Hosea have been in some ways difficult for us to dwell on and to read. For in many ways, we're seeing in the northern kingdom of Israel the opposite of Hebrews 11. Instead of committed trust in Yahweh and His commands, we've seen a people who are committed to almost everything besides the covenant that they have with God that they should be faithful to. Their worship has been hollow to Him. They have given what appears to be worship to God on the outside, but their hearts and their minds are far, far, far from Him. They've been putting their trust in things like chariots and the implements of war. They have looked for security to foreign powers and, and allegiances with non-believing peoples instead of trusting in their God who has been so faithful to them all along. They have forsaken God's ordained ways of worship and they've substituted the practices of pagans, even going to the length of building two golden calves to represent the I Am in, in, in Bethel and in Dan. He who declared to them in the third command or the fourth commandment that they should make no graven images of him, they have turned around and, and made these golden calves and said, we're going to worship God by worshiping these golden images. And so they have plowed iniquity and they're now reaping injustice, the fruit of their misguided labors or false fruits. Hosea tells us that they are lies that have corrupted their view of God. It says in verse 13, you have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies. And sadly, these are the fruit of lies that they're feeding themselves. They're believing things that have nothing to do with the covenant that God has given to them. It says, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. And so verses 13 through 15 lay out a grim picture of what kind of punishment that they will harvest as a result of sowing all this unfaithful rebellion because they're not at peace with God but continually break His law and treat Him with disrespect. He's going to remove them from the peace that He formerly provided. The tumult of war shall arise among your people, says Hosea. In other words, they're looking at a long drawn out period of battle. All of their fortresses are going to be destroyed. Those things that they looked in for their safety and their protection are going to be laid to waste. And the severe nature of this war is described in some grisly details, some of which are obscured to us, but some of which we can see plainly. Hosea says, As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, he compares this other historical battle um, that they would have known about, but that we don't have any record of, to the, to the, um, the battle to come. Now, they probably heard about that battle and instantly understood uh, what he meant by that. It was going to be a gruesome and grisly war. We don't have a record of that battle ourselves. But the next line describes part of what it probably looked like. It said, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. And we know enough about the Assyrian army to know that they were a merciless people, that they devastated the countryside. When they came to do battle against a people, they didn't take prisoners. They, they put everyone to the sword. This is... This is unfortunately the fruit of their rebelliousness that they're about, to, they're about to harvest. Verse 15, Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At the dawn of king, the king of Israel shall utterly be cut off. And so their identity as a nation is about to be wiped out. That doesn't mean that Israelites will be no more. That could not happen because God has promised that the nation of Israel will be a perpetual people after Abraham. 
And we know that the southern kingdom of Judah still remains a kingdom. But the severe nature of this, this judgment is something that they need to tremble about. It is on the way. And there is nothing they can do to stop it at this point. In the early verses of chapter 10, Hosea prophesied that the people who idolized these golden calves that they had set up in Bethel and in Dan will be devastated when the nation of Assyria not only defeats them in battle, but carries their precious golden calf idols away from them. They'll lose those representations of who Yahweh is among them. And so then we should take note, I think, of the significance that God in verse 11 begins to refer to Israel as a trained calf. They're going to be stripped of their calf idol. And he says, you are like a trained calf to me. And in a sense, they're like a living version of the idol that they will soon lose. They have become like the thing that they worship. When man builds graven images of God, he's much more likely to build a veiled image of himself than he is a true image and representation of Yahweh. And so we should be careful that the first table of the Ten Commandments, the first four commands, teach us how to think about our God. And, and one of those commands is to make no graven idols. The second, the second commandment teaches us these things. This trained calf, says Hosea, this northern kingdom, was in its early years blessed with the favorable assignment of threshing. Early on in this covenant relationship, God allowed the calf of Israel to be a threshing calf. Now, if you're a cow, there's several jobs that you could be doing. If you're an ox, you could be put to a lot of different tasks. But the prime task was threshing. That's the job you wanted to do if you were a calf. To be a threshing calf, what you would do is you'd be hooked to a, a small yoke that was attached to a pivot point. And on the other side of that pivot point was a round mortar stone. And so the threshing calf would just simply walk around in a circle. And that threshing stone, they would throw grain underneath it and the stone would then roll over the grain and it would break it apart so that that grain could then be threshed by workers in the fields. The, the benefit to the, the calf of being a threshing uh, animal was that you could just eat as much of the grain as you wanted to as you were walking around in that circle. It was kind of a, a prime job, if you would, if you were a calf. But now God is commanding them to take on a different assignment. Because of their disobedience, they have lost their place of favor. And in Hosea 10, 11 through 15, we see that this calf is now going to be strapped to a different implement. They're now going to carry the yoke of heavy labor. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Breaking up the soil of a field that had laid fallow was a much more backbreaking labor than threshing was. A harrow, if you've never heard of that term, is a kind of plowing apparatus that in modern days looks like big silver discs that will churn and turn hard soil up so that it becomes soft again. But in the days of Hosea, it was a large uh, rig that had pointy sticks that were pointed forward into the ground. And so you can imagine that a, uh, an oxen that was yoked to this kind of a piece of equipment would have to struggle to pull it forward. As it pulled forward, it would dig down into the dirt and then it would launch up as it got down too far to go any further. It was constant, difficult work, backbreaking labor for these animals, these beasts of burden. And that's the kind of work that Israel is called to do now. They must strain. They must pull at the implement to make headway in order to break through that hard-packed dirt that represents their stubborn hearts. 
There would be no heads of grain for the animal to eat in the midst of his labors here. And yet the grace of God shines even through this instance. For in Hosea's first use of the reaping and the sowing principle, the emphasis was on the consequences that were inevitably to come because of the harvest that was already being planted, the harvest of rebellion. Their sin would surely bring destructive results. But here in chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, Hosea does not simply scald Israel for sowing iniquity. He reminds them that sowing is not a one-time thing. While there is still life to be lived, there is still the opportunity to repent and change course, to forsake the sowing of iniquity in favor of turning back to Yahweh and with his help sowing once again towards righteousness and obedience. So we're going to focus the bulk of our time this morning on verse 12, the positive injunction to sow righteousness. Reading it again, Hosea says, Sow for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come again um, and rain righteousness upon you. In order to know what Hosea means when he charges the northern kingdom to break up your fallow ground, we need to take a moment to consider how lands were farmed in that day and age. What does it say about the hearts of the Israelites that Hosea prepares them to, um, that Hosea prepares them to till grounds that have been allowed to sit fallow? What he means by this is that fallow grounds are fields that have not been tilled recently. They've been used for something other than the thing they're meant for. They have not been used to grow up fruit. They've not been used to produce a, a, a useful and good harvest. Uh, and to fallow a field in Old Testament times was sometimes a practically beneficial thing for a season. We might read in Exodus 23, 11, actually, that the fields were to obey a kind of Sabbath, like the people were commanded to obey. Whereas human beings were to work for six days and then rest on the seventh day so that they might put their eyes and their hearts upon their God, Yahweh, they were also told to fallow their fields. That They were to plant harvest for six straight years. And on the seventh year, they were to allow their fields to lie fallow and to not plant anything in those fields. We know now that that has a very important agricultural benefit. If you keep planting the same thing over and over in a field, it tends to strip it of its resources and you won't get a very good crop out of it eventually. Allowing the field to lay fallow for a year allows the cycles of nature to build back up the nutrients and the nitrogens that are in that soil so that it might continue to be a useful plot of land on which you might uh, harvest and, and plant food. But farmlands that are not cultivated and tilled and planted and watered for an extended period of time, they become sun-parched. They become dry and overrun with weeds. They become hard-packed. And soon the shovel struggles to break the surface of the soil. A similar thing had happened to the hearts and the consciousness of the northern tribes. They had neglected God for so long that the soil of their hearts had become hardened and was in need of some serious work if they were going to be used for growing fruitfulness to the, to the Lord again. And so Hosea's charge is becoming clear to us here. This apathy to the covenant, this neglect of faithfulness and worship, um, worshipful love to Yahweh had crippled the people who were dwelling in the north. If there was any hope to eventually come out of this season of reaping, punishment and iniquity and destruction, then it would need to begin with the reconditioning of their heart. The stubborn rebellion that hardened them to Yahweh and his word would need to be broken up and repentance would need to be pursued so that the people would once again respond in a receptive way to the hope that God had originally sown in them 
by drawing them to himself. Now we may be tempted to think that there is no sowing to be done for the new covenant believer. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit, so he alone can break up the fallow grounds of our hearts, and that much is surely true. But the metaphor of reaping and sowing is not exclusively about salvation. It is also about bearing fruit, isn't it? It's about being productive in the way that we follow after the Lord God in righteousness once he has saved us. This is what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he utilizes the imagery of reaping and sowing himself in the New Testament book of Galatians. Go ahead and turn with me if you've got your Bibles to chapter 6 of that letter. The people of Galatia had started strong. They had been planted by the Apostle Paul and other missionaries, and they had been taught the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But some false teachers had infiltrated. They had came in and sown weeds among the the sheaves of wheat, if if you would. Um, They had sown ideas that were contrary to the gospel that had originally been established there in Galatia. They had been telling those believers that if a Gentile wanted to come to faith in Jesus Christ, then they would have to also become circumcised. They would also have to take the sign of the old covenant upon their bodies, and then they would have to place themselves under the yoke of obeying everything that the old commandment had to say. The civil and the ceremonial restrictions along with the moral restrictions of the old covenant. In other words, these false teachers were teaching that if you wanted to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. But this flew in the face of the very fundamental principle that Jesus had come, uh, that had come to plant in the hearts of those who would, who would believe in him. No Jew had been able to be a good Jew. To be able to follow the law perfectly was something that no Jew had been able to do. Christ was the first true Jew to come and to really live the law of a God in accordance to his commands and his scriptures. And so Paul rejects this idea that you must first become a Jew to become a Christian. But he does not reject the law itself. He simply rejects the idea that someone has to keep the law in order to earn their righteousness. Now with that in mind, we enter into midstream chapter 6 and read verses 7 through 8 of this letter written by Paul. Rather, 7 through 10. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul does not hate the law, friends. He is not advocating lawlessness to the church in Galatia. But the book of Galatians helps us tremendously by showing us how Jesus puts the law in its proper place. Apart from the grace of Jesus, the law condemns a heart like ours. It proves to us our failures. It exposes our inabilities to keep the law perfectly. And it reveals the rebellious tendencies of our hearts. But for those who've experienced the grace of God by putting their faith in the work of Jesus... All of that failure is set to the side and Jesus becomes legally, covenantally connected to us through faith. As we trust in Jesus and the work that he did, not only is his suffering legally accredited to our account, not only does his suffering on the cross become the suffering that we owe to God, not only does, do his tears and his shed blood 
um, count for what we owed to God for the wrath that we have earned through our rebelliousness, but we're also made new in our hearts and our minds so that we can now live free from the slave master of sin that used to rule us. We can now walk in a righteousness that's not our own. It's the righteousness of the Savior who came to save us. And so the grace of God doesn't just save us, friends. It also transforms us. It makes us new. It enables the sons and daughters of God to live according to the righteousness of our Savior in a way that we never could before. In light of that transformational effect, Christians who've been saved by grace don't look to the law to save them only. They look to the law. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. Christians who've been saved by grace don't look to the law to save them, but they do start to care about the law, and the moral law should now shape and direct the way that they live their lives. And so Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Here we see the outworking of the reaping and the sowing principle in the life of the believer who's saved by grace. Having been saved, we are to now sow in a new and different way than we used to sow. We're to sow after the, the pattern of the life of Christ. We're to sow to the Spirit. And so how do we do that? How do we sow to the Spirit? We begin by identifying that sin has no place in the life of a believer who is saved by grace. We recognize that if we've been made new by the Lord God, then it is no longer proper or appropriate for us to live in ways that defy God's leadership in our lives. When planting season comes, you don't just throw a bunch of seeds among the dead plants and the weeds that have sprung up over the off-season. You begin by removing the bad in order that it will not try and compete with the good that you're about to plant. You don't want weeds and foreign matter clogging up the farm. You don't want to be seeing your good crop blocked out from the sun and competing for nutrients with weeds and other fallow ground uh, we, uh, uh, plants. The lost person is largely powerless to do this for themselves. So for them, the first step in breaking up fallow ground is to appeal to the one who can change the heart and that is Jesus Christ himself. We are to repent when we see the sin that, belong, that has no place in our hearts, that doesn't belong in our lives. We're to confess to God that we have broken his law. We're to believe that his law is good and that his instructions to us are faithful. We're to trust that Jesus Christ has fulfilled every aspect of that law and that when we believe in him, his righteousness will count for us. For the one whose name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, the one who's been saved by grace, as long as you are here on earth, there will be continuous reaping and sowing as the Lord refines you and increases your faithfulness to him through the process of sanctification. Consider the person who claims to be saved by Jesus, but then willfully and without regret walks in sinful ways that dishonor Christ, that grieve the Holy Spirit, that put us at odds with God the Father. Think about that. And if we haven't been there ourselves, we've known people like that. How is that person significantly different than the typical northern kingdom Israelite who claimed to be connected to Yahweh through covenant but then lived as if the covenant had no true dominion over their lives? So if we are saved by the grace of God, then sin has no place in us anymore. And when we do sin, and every Christian does, we should recognize that and immediately decide, this is not what Christ has saved me to be. This is not what God is, is, is desiring for my life. We should repent and we should return to following after Jesus. As Paul declares, God will not be mocked. We cannot claim that we belong to God and then live as though he has no bearing on our lives. When sin sprouts up in us, 
We must not let it take root, friends. We must not let it begin to choke out the light of the gospel. Look again to Christ and appeal to him for help. If Jesus has made you new, he has granted you salvation. And along with that, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is now with you every step of the way is actively guiding you so that you can know the difference between evil and righteousness, between wheat, as it were, and weeds. And so the second thing we need to do in in light of this reaping and sowing principle as New Testament believers, once we've identified that sin has no place in our lives, is to seek the help of the Holy Spirit as He works in our conscience and brings uh, brings to memory the Word of God that guides us and directs us. The Holy Spirit accomplishes that actively through our our conscience, causing our hearts to be heavy when we break the law of God and through the ministry of the Word of God, showing us through His Scripture when our lives do not match up with His will. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What a wonderful blessing it is to know the Spirit of God. What a wonderful blessing it is to know that when we are saved by Jesus Christ, God puts his seal, his promise upon us by by giving us the third person of the Trinity to dwell with us and to live among us. And he doesn't do that for no reason. He does that for a purpose. We need the help of the Spirit to understand how to live in this new way that God has given to us. James' letter speaks to the function of God's word in the process of sowing. In verses 17 through 18 of James 3, he says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom that comes from above, that's nothing less than the word of God that is given to us through the prophets and the fathers and the apostles and Christ himself. And when you trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord grants you his Holy Spirit as a seal, as his signature upon your life that you belong to him. But the Spirit is there also now to give you eyes to understand the Scripture in ways that you never could before. The Holy Spirit enlightens us and teaches us the goodness of His Word. And you've probably experienced that as a believer as you've read the Scripture and and the veil has, as it were, been lifted from you and you've been able to understand for the first time things that maybe you read before but you did, did not understand. But now, through the help of the Holy Spirit, you can rejoice in. So the wisdom that comes from above is God's Word. And it is through God's word that we understand what God desires for his people. In many ways, the word of God functions like that harrow. Remember we spoke about that big implement that that, uh, is strapped to the back of the oxen. When they plow through a hardened um, field, those pointy stakes of the harrow dig into the ground and, 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 and break it up and make it soft again. And when we read through the word of God, it has that effect upon our hearts. It, it breaks apart our stubbornness. It, it lays bare our iniquities so that we will have a remorseful heart and we will no longer want to grieve the Spirit. It teaches us to turn away from our sin and to turn to what is good. When we not only hear the Word, but obey the Word, we're honoring the peace that Christ has earned for us. And so let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season you will reap a harvest that is holy. That's the third aspect of what it means to sow righteousness. We identify that sinfulness no longer has a place in us. 
we begin to put our faith and trust in Jesus and lean upon the help of the Holy Spirit so that we can see what is good and we can desire it. And thirdly, we begin to walk in faith, doing what is good, so that in due season, we might reap this holy harvest of God's blessing. Now, I want to remind you, this language, this agricultural language of reaping and sowing uh, has some implications to it. When you plant in a field, it takes time to grow that seed into a full-born plant. It takes time for fruit to be produced. And so part of doing good is endurance. It's having the patience to know that no matter what, even if we're doing good things and we don't seem to be seeing any, uh, any uh, fruit from that, that if we endure and, and, and stay tight to the Lord, that eventually things will uh, look better than they did before. God will begin to grow our understanding and will give us a greater appreciation and love for the things that he has called us to. And don't we have opportunities, friends, to do good to one another as God has done to us? Has God not opened the door for this kind of loving camaraderie and fellowship in, in our church? We look around us and there's always opportunities for us to, to bless a brother or sister, to care for their needs and to encourage them by showing them the word that has been encouragement to us. Isn't there always someone who could use a hand, who could use the gifts that God has given to us? And if we are faithful and, and trusting in the Holy Spirit, it's, it's easy to walk forward in doing the good things that God has called us to do when we trust in Him. Now, it is possible at some point for the believer to experience a fallowness of heart, a period of inactivity or apathy that leads to a, to a, a kind of coldness to the Lord. This is not the same as the idea of a carnal Christian. We've spoken about that uh, some in the past. This is a false idea that someone could say a sinner's prayer one time in their life and then turn away from the Lord and never honor Him again, and they're good just because they, they walk the aisle one time. That idea of a carnal Christian is not a scriptural idea. But we do know that brothers and sisters in Christ are going to go through seasons just like fields go through seasons. And there'll be times when your heart will be completely connected to the Lord. You'll feel alive in Him, and you'll want nothing more than to be in the Scripture. You'll, you'll rejoice in the way that he's using the spiritual gifts that he has given to you to bless his name and, and to bless your church. There are seasons like that in life. And there are other seasons when circumstances of life can make things very difficult for us. We can begin to lose track of the blessings that God has given. And it can begin to become challenging to follow after the light of Christ. And that is why God has given to us the ordinary means of grace that I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon today. The ordinary means of grace is something that we have spent a lot of time on in the evening services as we worked through the, the Baptist Catechism, include hearing the Word of God preached to us. When, when our hearts are heavy, the house of the Lord should be where we want to be because it is here that God reminds us of His amazing love for us. It is here that we are once again told that it is not our righteousness that connects us to God, but it is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is here that the Word of God reveals to us those things that we don't want to see so that we will take care of our heart, that we will do the repentance that needs to be done in order to maintain that loving connection with the Lord God. So the, the common means of grace, the ordinary means of grace include preaching of the Word. It includes the singing of, of praises to the Lord God. As we come and we, we magnify Him by singing back to Him the things that He has shown to us in His Word, it reminds us of his power and his beauty and his goodness. And it gives joy to us to sing to our Lord. It, it includes praying together, seeking the Lord in, in, in communication, telling him what is on our hearts 
and asking him to make the desires of his hearts the desire of our own hearts. It includes giving to the Lord of our service and of our gifting, of our resources. These are all the the ordinary means of grace by which God continually ministers to our hearts and keeps our hearts from growing fallow and growing hard. Now this labor is in no way a work that we can accomplish apart from God's provision for us. I'm reminded of our time in 1 Corinthians, back in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, when we read about those individuals whom God had used to bless the Corinthian church. It says in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. So if your ground became fallow by ignoring Yahweh, you will not till it up effectively by ignoring Yahweh. You will not till up the hardness of your heart by leaning on your own strength or your own understanding. You will only break up that bitterness and and, and that exhaustion and that failure when you seek the power of the Lord and and you lean on the, the Holy Spirit that God has given to you to make you able to do the righteous things that you could not do before you knew Christ. Was it too late for the northern kingdom? As we bring this back to the book of Hosea, and as we think again about that northern kingdom that had shown such rebelliousness to the Lord, it was, in fact, too late for the kingdom in the north. They would no longer be a sovereign place of their own. They would no longer have dominion over their cities. Their kings would be taken from the throne. But it was not too late for the individuals within that nation. There was still time for the remnant, for those who loved the Lord and had wanted to be faithful to him, there was still time for them to cry out to the Lord and to trust in him. And he would surely carry them through even this terrible affliction that the Assyrians were soon to bring upon the people in the north. The assurance that Yahweh will come and rain righteousness upon those who sowed to righteousness echoes the prophet's charge in the beginning of chapter 6. And we'll close with this. Hosea 6, 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. As we press on, we effectively break up the fallow ground of our hearts As we press on towards Christ, we see the power of Christ softening us and making us supple so that the Lord might take us and mold us into the things he wants us to be. And as we transition into our time of communion, I just want to ask the Lord's blessing over this time as we're going to see that the table is is one of those ways that God will refine us and break up the fallow ground of our hearts. So let's, let's bow in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your amazing grace and we ask, Lord, that as we put our thoughts and our hearts upon you, that you would remind us again of the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. Lord, each one of us, when we try to be righteous before you, when we attempt to keep your law and serve you in a way that is what you deserve, Lord God, we all see that we fall short. And so it's important for us every day to return our hearts and minds to the picture of Christ who is willing and able to come and live perfectly in obedience 
to your spirit and to the law. Let us think about his life lived in perfect submission to you. Let us think about his death offered up freely so that we would not have to experience judgment from you. Let us think of his resurrection that happened in victory, knowing that the tomb is empty and death cannot hold back our Savior. Let us remember that this Savior, uh, who has given so much to make us yours, is surely going to come again soon. And let us wait in great expectation of that day. And in the meantime, let us serve him faithfully and be thankful for the fruit that he produces in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.